I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Red alert. All hands stand to battle stations. Luck as falls and attack positions. Prepare for battle! Autobots, roll out! Get ready, it's your weekly dose of nerd culture. All wings reported. With your crew, Obi-John Kenobi. Hello there. Commander Scott. Amazing about it, I know this ship like the back of my hand. Julian. You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? And the Doc. I'm Scott. Movies, TV, streaming, video games, comic books, board games, toys, collectibles, cosplay, conventions. If it's happening in the world of geekdom, we're talking about it. So lock and load, bag and board, and roll for initiative. We've got your... Nerd Alert! Hello there. It's Obi-John Kenobi, your favorite host in all of podcasting, and welcome to your weekly Nerd Alert. Uh, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, before we get this this topic rolling, which I'm really excited for today's topic, uh, we're going to be spending the pretty much the majority of the show talking about one movie. It's a movie we've talked about before on the show. Uh, it, it's shown up on multiple lists for various things, and it's a movie the three of us can never talk enough about. So we just figured, let's just do a whole episode on it and get it out of our systems. Spoiler, it'll never be out of our systems. Uh, this is a movie <laughs> uh, near and dear to us. We love quoting it to each other uh, and back and forth from each other. Uh, I'll tell you what it is in a minute. But first, let me introduce my co-hosts, uh, the, 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 my stalwart right-hand compatriots on this adventure we're about to undergo. First up, he's the man who keeps the nerdy in the Top Nerdy to Me Network. He is, uh, because he's Catholic, the so default, he's the Aramis. Of our three Musketeers trilogy, uh, trilogy trio, <laughs> it's Commander Scott. <laughs> yes, that is true. I am Catholic, and I am a trilogy. I think. And you're you're a man horse, so you're totally Aramis. Exactly. Women uh, just throw okay. themselves at you. Yes, they do. They can't get enough of my nerdiness. Um, <laughs> speaking of nerdiness, uh, I found out something quite interesting here in the last uh, week or so that. Uh, the first webcam in existence, and this just piqued my interest, was actually created to watch a coffee pot. That was the entire purpose of it. Um, 1991 University of Cambridge had a coffee pot outside of something they called the Trojan Room. I'm not entirely certain what the Trojan Room was, but everybody in the office got tired of getting up to go get coffee, only to find that the coffee pot was empty. They didn't like this, making the trek all the way there to find no coffee. So the computer engineers, being computer engineers, decided to point a camera. A 128 by 128 pixel grayscale camera was connected to the local computer network. And it took a picture like once every 60 seconds or something like that and sent it out to all the computers on the system. The uh, They wrote their own software client and protocols, uh, originally dubbed XCoffee. It ran for two years until 1993 when web browsers gained the capability to display images, much to the happiness of all the porn enthusiasts in the world. Um, and it soon became clear that uh, the HTTP, HTTP uh, protocol, which is redundant, uh, uh, was a much 
better way of transmitting images. So in 1993, the very first webcam went online, giving a live feed of the coffee pot outside the Trojan Room at Cambridge University. I thought that was cool as shit. So I take two things away from that story, which one, that is the nerdiest solution to (laughs) is there coffee in the coffee pot I have ever heard. Like, I feel like that's an entire episode of of Big Bang Theory right there. Um, And number two, what the fuck goes on in the Trojan Room? Uh, That I don't know. Um, I have not gone down the rabbit hole that is the Trojan Room at uh, uh, Cambridge University, but it's in the same building as the computer lab. So I would assume it's something similar. Uh, I'm sorry. The only thing that I, I sort of zoned out for a second, as soon as you said the Trek to find the coffee, because in my mind, I immediately went to Star Trek, the undiscovered coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we not making this parody now? Uh, <laughs> all right. We got a new t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, Schrodinger's coffee. Damn uh, it, Jim, voice. I'm a doctor, not a barista. Ah, see? Come on! <laughs> Write that down. That needs to be a t-shirt. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> well, the voice you hear making amazing Star Trek uh, witticisms uh, rounds out this this uh, amazing trinity uh, that he is... <sighs> Hands down, he's he's the Porthos of the group. He he loves his work. Joining us from somewhere in time and space, perhaps via a DeLorean, it's the Doc. Excuse me, this sash was a gift to me from the Queen of America. There's no Queen of America. I beg to differ, infant. We're on quite intimate terms unless you can prove otherwise. Here's my proof. I see. He thinks he can challenge the mighty Porthos with a sword. The who? Don't tell me you've never heard of me. Porthos the windbag? Oh, uh, little pimple. Meet me behind the Luxembourg <laughs> at one o'clock and bring a long wooden box. I'll be there. And seen. The worst fan adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> what this movie ever what god that was painful to listen to okay the lines were spot on your delivery lacks something until we get to uh, uh porthos completely missing his line of oh i see it's twit of the month come to challenge the mighty porthos thinks he's handy with a sword that's the line sorry yeah I'm going by what I had in front of me here. And <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You had it pulled up in front of you? Yeah, apparently that's what it's missing. Yeah, somebody uh, did not dictate that down right. No. No, they did not. This is in apparently IMDB is not as uh, you know, reliable. Uh, you didn't just watch the movie and write them all down yourself? Gosh. Listen, I watched the movie, okay? <laughs> hey, hey, I'm proud of you, Jay. <laughs> Not like I haven't seen this movie a million times already. I just don't remember lines as well as everybody else. Well, again, thank you for joining <laughs> us, Doc. <laughs> hey, no problem. Uh, that makes me your beautifully bearded, uh, grim-drinking Athos. 
Uh, if you, what was that? You're, you're Milady de Winter, right? No? No, no, that would be Whitney. Oh, okay. Yeah. This week, if you couldn't guess from our super subtle clues already, we're talking about the Three Musketeers, specifically the greatest version of the Three Musketeers ever put to cinema, the 1993 Three Musketeers uh, from Walt Disney slash Buena Vista. Uh, it's one of our favorite movies. Uh, again, we, we've talked about it on multiple episodes in the past. We quote it to each other, usually a Porthos line, uh, but we'll get into all that in a minute. Um, so we're going to spend the whole episode telling you why we love this. Uh, we'll talk about some other adaptations of the Three Musketeers, uh, but we're going to go into all the different things about this we love uh, and, and why we love it and why you should watch this movie immediately. Um, so first, let me give you some background very quickly. Uh, like I already said, it was released in 1993. Makes it really easy to remember. When was that movie made? What's it called? Three Musketeers, 93. Uh, or as we refer to it when we're talking about different uh, adaptations, it's the 93 Musketeers. Uh, see, we're clever. Uh, this movie uh, has a Rotten Tomatoes score of a criminally low 28% critic score. Fuck you, critics from 1993. Pull your head out of your ass. Uh, slightly better, but still highly underrated 62 user score. Uh, what movie did you think you people were watching? What the hell? Uh, it was made for $30 million. As much as I could tell, it brought in $53 million domestically. I could not find uh, worldwide gross for this movie. So I'm not sure how much it ended up making. Suffice to say, uh, it it quite it, it missed the mark they had set, um, because we never got any follow ups or sequels to it. Sadly, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about why the Three Musketeers is awesome, and I think the best place to start with for that discussion. Uh, and stop me if you want to start somewhere else, boys. But I think we should start with the cast. Yes, let's start with that cast, especially the the worst casting in that cast. <laughs> okay, put a pin well, in that. So much anger. Negative Nancy. <sighs> Sorry, Mom. Uh, let's start with the great casting. Uh, my boy, Kiefer Sutherland, Jack Bauer as uh, Athos. The most dour of the Musketeers. He takes his drinking very seriously. He has a phenomenal beard. Uh, and he has a super dark backstory about a jilted lover. I think Kiefer Sutherland nails that part. Spoilers. Yeah. God. Oh, I'm sorry. Spoilers for a, a story written in was 1844. Somewhere along in there. Some people just yeah, haven't got My bad. Fine. Spoiler warning. If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Three Musketeers, uh, we're going to spoil it for you. So go read the goddamn book already uh, or watch this movie. Because you really shouldn't be listening to us talk about how great a movie is without having seen the movie. That's just weird. We're going to spoil it for you. Uh, I love Kiefer Sutherland in this role. I think, uh, and granted, he's not really stretching his acting chops very much in this, but uh, I think he does a good job of of uh, when he needs to be a little more somber. He does that very easily, uh, but he's not just he's not somber all the time. He isn't grim all the time. He he can throw out a joke or you know laugh it up with uh, Porthos just like anybody else can, and uh, some some fancy sword work, especially when he's punching out Porthos. Who doesn't love punching out Porthos? I mean, that that, uh, that kind of uh, uh, 
uh, I, I guess it, it caps the, the evening for his entertainment. He just loves it. I love the laugh he gives after he punches him out, too. Because I think that's the first time you see him smile that entire scene. <laughs> it's when he gets to punch out both those. Yep. And what better... He, Good. He, you, you could say that Kiefer Sutherland was a boy that was not lost in this movie. Huh? Huh? Yeah? Huh? Yeah. You gotta work that hard to get around to the PJ. Huh? It's just you're, yeah. you're trying too hard. Right? It'll come naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, he wasn't lost. Huh? Huh? Yeah. Uh, um, Hang on. Just stay on target. Thank you. (laughs) Unlike some other podcasts, we don't have 24 hours to fill today. So, oh, I can make dumb puns, too. Keep going. She's my flower. You see the size of that goddamn chicken? Sorry. Hey, it's the live version. <laughs> uh, so following that up, and I'm going to save the best for last, guys. Uh, Charlie Sheen playing Aramis. Now, granted, you got to keep in mind, I know Charlie Sheen, when you say that name in 2021, evokes a very different image of Charlie Sheen from 1993. So let me put you back on the correct Charlie Sheen mindset, okay? This is 93 post-Hot Shots and Hot Shot, literally post-Hot Shots Part Deux. Uh, Charlie Sheen. He had just finished shooting a part D when he came on to shoot this movie. So he has not become the drug-addled crazy psycho uh, doing his best to ruin his own career version of Charlie Sheen that we know of nowadays. He wasn't drinking Tiger Blood and winning all the time yet. But he was still seen as a, a super bankable star um, he was starting to get into comedy with things like Major League and uh, Hot Shots um, he had done Wall Streets, I believe, uh, before this movie. So very super bankable star. And as the the oddly uh, uh, dual role of the super super orthodox uh, takes you know dying and death very seriously, uh, but total man whore at the same time has no problem breaking the vow of adultery, uh, but killing he takes a little pause in <laughs> Aramis. Well, now, to be fair, in this version, you know, he does ask for God's forgiveness, or he wants to ask for God's forgiveness for the adultery, but God was busy. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess he didn't know she was married until her husband was kicking the door in. But I do love that her husband is one of the Cardinal's guards. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's like my favorite part of that. It's like insult to injury. Yeah. Yeah. So... When it comes to this, since we just mentioned the Cardinals guards, I'm going to break off under a little tangent here real quick. Okay. So uh, every screen iteration of this story that I am aware of, and I've seen quite a few of them, portrays two very distinct groups. And in the novel, there are two distinct groups. You have the three, the Musketeers and the Cardinals guards and they always make them seem like they are completely separate groups when in fact they weren't. So first of all, I'm look at, I want to look at a little bit of history here. So the idea of the Musketeers is a bit of a mis- misnomer. Uh, they were actually called uh, the Musketeers of the guard. And the first company of the Musketeers was led by Monsieur Treville and then later by Monsieur D'Artagnan. 
And their job was indeed to protect the king, but only when he was out of residence. When he was was in Paris and he was in the Louvre, he was protected by uh, a different regiment. Now, the quote-unquote Cardinal's Guards were musketeers as well. They were part of the exact same regiment as the musketeers. They were musketeers of the guard. They were the second company of musketeers. So technically, they were the same regimental unit. Fine, it's fine. We're all doing fine here. How are you? <laughs> Just try Scott, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you very much for trying to educate us. Uh, we were talking about casting, uh, so go ahead and play that same sound clip to yourself now. No, my one's on topic. I was talking about the Musketeers. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, look, hey. Uh, we're going to treat the uh, the historical accuracy of this movie the same way that um, Alexander Dumas did, which is, yeah, that's great. I don't give a shit. Uh, get your history out of my story. Get your history out of my story. And uh, here's what you need to know about the Cardinals guards. They're the bad guys, and they have red tunics. Okay, The good guys are the musketeers. They wear blue. So just like Kentucky basketball, red is bad. Blue is good. Everybody got that? Uh, okay. Uh, any other comments about Charlie Sheen while we try to do this thing back on topic? All right, let's just get to the one we all want to talk about. Jay, tell us about your boy, Pontos. Oliver Platt. Yes. Yeah. He definitely overacts every scene that he's in, but in a good way. Oh, he steals every scene. Um, yeah, you, you, he's just so over the top in pretty much everything, and his delivery of his lines is very on point. And uh, sometimes his non-delivery, like uh, when they're on the ship, and he just sort of stands there, and they're like, ah, Porthos the pirate. Which, after recently watching it again, I forgot about. One of my favorite things is when the Lady to Winter and her party is about to uh, board the ship. And uh, he's saying, you know, it's the Lady to Winter and her crew chartered, you know, we're arriving from Paris, permission to board. And you just hear, hear Porthos go, permission granted. It's great. I love that part. Yeah, uh, like Scott pointed out, Oliver Platt pretty much steals every scene he's in in this movie. He gets all the great lines. He gets all the good jokes. Uh, he's just infinitely fun to watch. Uh, don't be an idiot. Of course we intend to resist. Just give us a minute. Well, don't be so stupid, man. Of course we intend to resist. Just give us a minute, all right? Which is actually in the book, not verbatim, but that actually happens. Um, which is another thing I have against people criticizing this movie. We'll get to that when we get to that. For a long time, my go-to let's go line, you know, whenever you're with friends or whatever, it's like, hey, it's time to time to leave or we got to get it going to get on this, was always, come, D'Artagnan, we're saving the king. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to go with part. Now we're prepared to resist you. Oh, that was good. <laughs> or when he his pistol with the knife on it, and he just he shoots a guy and then flips the knife out, stabs a guy in the arm, and then kills him with his uh, rapier, and goes, "I like this." <laughs> it just keeps fighting. Now. 
Now I, I, I'm going to, can I dive into the, the very small, short historical rabbit hole here again? Just once one more, please. Sure. I mean, you already did it once. So I, I know um, there's one thing, there's one scene with Porthos fighting in this movie that really gets me and I don't really care for it too much. And that's when he uses his, I guess you could call it a tri blade, but it's a parrying dagger is what it is. Remember he, 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 he blocks, What's his name? Sora. The guy comes in and and he he pulls out a dagger that that has two spring loaded other uh, blades on it and he catches it. Yeah. And then he he twists it and breaks the sword. So first of all, this is actually this is an actual historical weapon. It's called a parrying dagger. It's meant just like he uses it to capture, you know, and hold and move out of the way an enemy blade, thus opening their guard. But two things are wrong with his use of that one. I don't believe once again on this part, I'm not, you know, a hundred percent certain, uh, but I don't believe they were spring loaded. Uh, they were just made with, with the three blades. The spring loaded just gives you a really cool visual for a movie and I'm okay with that. But then he twists it and he breaks and it's not a weapon breaker. Uh, am I saying that couldn't happen? No, but that guy was using a really shitty sword if that broke his blade, but there actually was a weapon breaker and it was a, it was a, it was a steel. It looked like a big steel comb. And what you would do is you would parry with your weapon and upon the parry, you would, you would basically reach over with the weapon breaker, clamp it in the teeth, and you would pull your weapon and the breaker in opposite directions. And that would snap the other person's blade. So, yeah, he, he catches it with that parrying dagger and he just kind of twists it about maybe 10 degrees and it just snaps that blade. And I'm like, well, that's just a really shitty blade because there's no way that weapon would actually break like that. But just Well, saying. if it wasn't. If it was heat treated too incorrectly to make the steel brittle. Once again, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying it's not probable, and that's not how that weapon was designed. Or, you know, if it had a minute fracture from yep. exactly. the heat treat. Yep. Uh, not, not saying impossible, just saying not probable, because it would have been a really shitty sword. And it probably would have broken amongst the other, you know, the, the big clashing of all the swords and stuff before the little parrying dagger went snap. That's just me. Well, I don't know. Just saying. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> John, do you have anything to add to this historical accuracy? Yeah, I love that part where he pulls it out and breaks the guy's sword. You know why? I don't give a shit if it could really happen. It's a fucking movie. It looks cool. You're going to get on him for having the uh, the Spanish bolo tie thing that he shouldn't have unless he's uh, traveled to Spain at some point? Who yeah, says he, you're, you're fine with that? Who said he has? He's a pirate. Who says he hasn't traveled to Spain? So he was when hanging was he, with Spanish cowboys. When was he wearing a bolo tie? Not a bolo tie. He's got the whatever it's called, the the three, uh, uh, the rope weapon with the balls. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, oh, I get it. I don't yeah. know if they're actually Spanish or not. I'd have to actually look up the history of, of that, the that, that, is, that is Spanish. I looked it up, Scott, because I was like, oh, Scott's going to have a problem with that. I better be able to counter that. So here I am ready to counter you with that, and you went a whole different direction on me. So, well, sorry, but, I, 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 but, but, but there's not enough information in the movie for me to counter it because there's nothing that tells me he hasn't been to Spain. Point being... I love the fact that Porthos can distinguish himself by, and this is why it's absolutely 1000% J if we're ever going to be three musketeers, is because, yes, he's handy with a sword like all the musketeers are, but he loves his work. And his work is oftentimes killing. And, uh, you know, the more tools in your toolbox, the better. So he has a satchel that is apparently just endlessly full of weird, crazy, random weapons 
that he tries out in the middle of combat <laughs> and, and keeps the ones he likes. Uh, and I like that that distinguishes him from the other musketeers at certain points. He's always you got know. some crazy ass weapon. Scott, I was just thinking. Yes, sir. I'm surprised that that's what pulls you out of the movie, that part. But not the guy who's hired to assassinate the king shooting a smoothbore rifle from that distance. And accurately. Okay, well. <laughs> One, that doesn't take me out of the movie. I'm still very much into this movie. I'll watch it all the time and I love this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, please don't mistake any of my little nitpick criticisms for actual hatred of this movie. I love this movie. This is a great movie. No, I mean, like, the historically speaking. Yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah. but when it, so when it comes to the sharpshooter, um, he's using a scope that I don't think existed in the 17th century. Um, and I don't think he has a scope, though. No, it's got a scope on it. Uh, but it looks like it's got a 19th century Civil War era scope. Um, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and uh, pull this up here real quick, so I'm I'm looking. But also, if I remember correctly, um, his rifle is a flintlock, correct? Because because I think I remember him putting powder in the pan, and he pulling the pulling the hammer back, right? It's a flintlock. It's definitely not a matchlock. Yeah, and that's the thing. In, in in the 17th century, you would have had either match locks or I think wheel locks were just coming in um, to play. It definitely would not have been a flint lock at that point. I don't I don't think so. Um, and 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 now I'm not saying that somebody who makes their living with that type of weapon doing that couldn't get good enough to be that accurate with that weapon, um, but being that accurate with that weapon every time. Like they say in the movie, he can do that every time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, that wonderful gravelly voice that uh, Rochefort has. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I, I wouldn't believe that, but none of this actually takes me out of the movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was just saying like, makes you, gives you pause to go, oh, wait a minute like that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, John, are we talking about the movie? Sorry. Hey, hey, don't apologize. We're still talking about the movie. I wasn't stopping you. (laughs) Uh, I was trying to steer us back on the topic of talking about the cast, and Scott just seems to want us to take us in every direction but the cast. So let's get to what Scott wants to talk about with the cast. The fourth (laughs) member of our trio. Yeah, I know what I said. Uh, it's the Three Musketeers, where there's four main characters. D'Artagnan, played by Robin himself, Chris O'Donnell. Horrible miscast. Horrible. Horrible miscast. He is so good. to explain why, or just tell us you don't like it? That should be enough, damn it. All right? Oh, okay, okay. I don't like it. No, I just... I... You don't don't like him in this role? You don't like Chris O'Donnell in general? Come on. I don't don't like him in this role. Um, I really... And I think every time I watch this movie, and and I know you and I have talked about this before and everything, uh, but it's just his, his thing is always... He's all over the place. He's like, literally, he's like, he's like, you don't want to lose your head? But no, I like it very much. Well, then tell me. No, I won't tell you. I'm now brave. Oh, wait, I'm scared. Now I'm brave. Will you give me back my father's sword? I'll cut your heart out with it. 
I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but he's just, he's all over the damn place. He's timid, then he's brave, then he's arrogant, and then he's fucking, I don't know what the fuck he is. He's just god-awful. He is the worst, he's the weakest link of this cast. No argument here. However, how old is D'Artagnan supposed to be in the story? He's like 18, 17, 18. Yeah. He's like, yeah, 16, 17, somewhere around there. He's, 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 he's a young man. Yes. Heading into the big city to make his way in the world. Yeah, he's a dumb fucking 18-year-old, Scott. That's how dumb 18-year-olds act. They're super brave and cocky until the real world hits, and then they're, oh, shit, this is the real world. I'm scared now. Yeah, that's exactly how 18-year-olds act. He's I, I, super cocky until faced with the consequences of his cockiness, and then he's a little scared. But he also happens to be really good with the sword, and he's kind of a badass. So he he tends to badass his way out of whatever situation he finds himself in. And and I can get on board with that viewpoint if it wasn't for the fact that 16, 17, 18-year-olds don't go from cocky to scared to cocky to scared within the span of 45 seconds. They don't do it. It's not that damn quick. Well, well, in the scene that you're talking about where, okay, so he's spying on the Cardinal and Lady de Winter, and then he gets caught by Rochefort, and he's scared when he's caught, and he honestly, he doesn't get cocky and, like, brave until the Cardinal turns around the second time and says if you did know where they were, and then he says, I wouldn't tell you. Yeah, literally. Three seconds. He goes from, oh, no, I like my head very much where it is. You know, I don't know where they're at. Please, please believe me. Please, I don't know where they're at. Please. And if you did, wait, I'm brave now. I wouldn't tell you. See, he he just embraced the fact that he's not going to make it out of this. No, no, yeah, no. Not, see, that's not in the time span. No, it's just the acting is flip flop. It's 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 weak. It literally, I mean, it, it would have been more believable if he is scared. It's like, look, look, no, I like my head. I like where it is. Please, I don't know where they're at. I don't know anything. I I don't know where they're at. And he's and, and you know, and if you did, and he's like, I I probably still wouldn't tell you. You know, something. I don't know. Not the. I wouldn't tell you. I'm he's never... our hero. He has to be heroic. If he snitches on the musketeers, he's not much of a hero. Then have him be a brazen badass the entire time. Don't have him flip-flop. Don't make him wishy-washy and then brave. And then wishy-washy and then brave. I, I, I honestly feel God like he was Chris scared. O'Donnell. Got it. Yeah. I feel like he was scared the whole time, and then when he realized, hey, even if I told him where they were, he'd probably still kill me. That's when he becomes brazen. Like you, you, you can make excuses for his acting all you want, but his acting is shit. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I hate his performance in this movie. He flip flops. He's wishy washy, and he's the wrong cast. You want to know who the right cast was? Paul McGann. Why Paul McGann is not D'Artagnan in this damn movie? I have no idea. They have to invent a whole role just to give him screen time. Yes, he's just sack, but they have to give him a whole other role, role, a role that's completely invented for this movie because for some odd reason they don't want to use the actual plot line from the story to explain what he's doing that they use Gerard to explain what he's doing. Anyway. Because Gerard's funny and it gives us cool payoff at the end and Paul McGann wasn't cast because who the fuck is Paul McGann? Uh, this movie has to make money and Chris O'Donnell at this point in time, hot off scent of a woman, he was the guy to go to. That's why, Scott. I get oh, it. You don't like Chris O'Donnell. That's fine. 
Yep, he's like the male Liv Tyler. And I will give you that, yes, of this ridiculously stacked cast, he's certainly the weakest link. Uh, but I think he does a fine job playing the dumb 18-year-old trying to make his way in the world, uh, who is constantly in way over his head, uh, but finds his bravery in the end. I'm fine with that. So let's get on to an acting performance that I, I believe, like Porthos, we're all in agreement on. Your heroes are only as strong as the villains they face. And good God, does this movie have the villain of villains. Talk about chewing scenery and making horribly corny lines leap off the page. As Cardinal Richelieu, the evil cardinal plotting to take over France and seduce the queen out from under the king. Tim goddamn Curry. Just nailing this role. Is one of my favorite Tim Curry roles. But now that I make that statement, I can't think of a Tim Curry role I don't like. Exactly. Because it's Tim goddamn Curry. He makes everything amazing. He does. Uh, But specifically in this movie, uh, he is just, he's evil and he is loving it. Uh, And it makes him fun to watch. Uh, You don't want him to win because you want the heroes to win. But you're also like, okay, but if you did win i wouldn't really hate it like <laughs> i like watching tim curry like he should lose but like don't don't kill him i want to see more of him yeah now uh, yeah. if you want to if you want to see a good actor change emotional response in the middle of a scene and do it well you lo- i love that scene where you know uh the the musketeers are storming the castle because they're trying to save the king from cardinal richelieu's evil plot and everything. The Cardinals guards are, are fending them off because, you know, they don't know what the fuck's actually going on. They just see blue and they want to kill it. And, and, uh, Richelieu leads the King and queen back into the throne room and he's sitting on the throne, you know, and he's trying to make one final plea to the queen to be at his side. And she says, I'd rather die. And then he just, just explodes into just blind rage for like half a second when he, when he can be arranged kicks the yeah just see now that is how you go from one emotional state to another emotional state as a good actor so yeah you just really hate chris o'donnell he does it's fine we're gonna move past it tim curry uh no, it, it, if 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 everything we said so far you're like i don't get why these nerds like this movie that reason alone to be enough for you to give this a watch uh is is tim curry playing the ultimate evil bad guy and I say that about a guy who played the devil. So there you go. And did it well? Yes. I'd rather watch this role over to that one, though. Really? He's just... <laughs> He's... Don't get me wrong. Darkness is a great character. Uh, and, and I love Legend. Um, and that makeup is fantastic. Uh, but this is just 100% Tim Curry being Tim Curry. Uh, he's, he's not hindered by all that makeup. Uh, he gets to just he's he again he's chewing the scenery, uh, and 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 steals every scene he's in. I I would love to have seen an, <laughs> a scene of him in Porthos. Who can steal this scene? Because uh, I don't think they're ever on screen together at the same time. Um, and there's was... a reason that there's too much. We can't have both of them in the same frame at the same time. It's, it's not big enough. We wouldn't we didn't shoot in <laughs> 70 millimeter IMAX. Now you know. Uh, Talking about him when he shares scenes with other characters, him and Rebecca Mornay yes. play off each other very well in this movie. 
And that segues beautifully into our next villain, Rebecca de Mornay as the Lady de Winter. Uh, it was not the original idea uh, or not the original person they had in mind, but thank God they went with this person because I think Rebecca de Mornay is fantastic in this. She's really playing like a, a film noir femme fatale. Uh, she's she's gorgeous, but she'll kill you. She's that that you know uh, uh, Black Widow kind of character where it's like she's gorgeous and I want to sleep with her, but I'll probably end up dying. Maybe it's worth it. I'm not sure yet. Um, <laughs> she's she's you, you never quite know what side she's going to end up on because uh, you feel like she's she's playing both sides. She's kind of in it for herself. Um, has a great backstory that ties into one of her main characters. Gets a little bit of redemption at the end. Um, but just just nails it, and yeah, the scenes with her and Tim Curry are fantastic. You know, with they the are. snap of my fingers, my guard's gonna be in here. With the flick of my wrist, I can change your religion. Yeah, Phyla and her jokes I didn't get until much later. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, no, they're they're great to watch together. Uh, and they originally had um. Uh, hold on, my notes are scatterbrained. Well, one of one of the things with Tim Curry in this movie, I feel very sorry for him and Cardinal Richelieu because he tries so hard to get laid in this movie and he doesn't succeed. Uh, Cardinal, <laughs> I don't believe that in this movie. is a burden. Sorry, <laughs> he does. He tries with like every female character he comes across. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, my mind just randomly went to Alan Rickman as um, the Metatron. Uh, no, in Robin Hood. Oh, the sheriff, uh, sheriff of Nottingham. My room. What does he say? He's like my room, ten thirty. You, ten forty-five, and bring a friend. Close enough. <laughs> Uh, no, you're right, Scott. He does. Uh, he's trying to seduce the queen. He's trying to seduce the lady to win her. Uh, I think maybe Constance is the only one he doesn't. Uh, well, at least that we don't see him trying to. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a deleted scene somewhere. It's a deleted scene, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, poor Tim Curry. He, he does. He doesn't He doesn't get any love in this movie. Spends all of legend trying to seduce what's-her-name. Maybe that's his thing, you know? Just can't catch a break. Tim Curry can't can't catch a break. I mean, literally in Rocky Horror Picture Show, he's trying to make a lover, and it still doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, he he's not trying to get laid in Congo. That you know of. We don't know that. <laughs> what do you think he's going to do with all those diamonds once he finds the lost city, Jay? Uh, sell them for money. To quote, to quote, to quote Office Space: Two chicks at the same time. The entire plot is just him trying to get laid. That's it. <laughs> I think we can make this theory work. Uh, we'll come back to it. Maybe next year we'll be the Tim Curry getting laid theme. Uh, but we have one more villain we have to talk about because he he's it's an it's a thankless task being the right hand man of the main villain. Uh, you're there to you know be a physical opponent to our to the heroes, uh, but you're not the smartest, and you're not going to be the best in a sword fight because you're you're there to die. Uh, it's a thankless task, but this man does it really well. Uh, Michael Wincott as Rochefort, isn't that silly kind of a cheat? Oh, you beat me to it. I did. See, I knew Doc was going to do it. That's why I didn't do it. I was going to let the man have his moment. Right, it's fourth fine. Take two. Michael Wincott as Rochefort. 
Isn't that a smelly kind of cheese? Yes, it is. I looked it up. <laughs> Fun story. So <laughs> I spent a day uh, uh, training at a different Kroger store for a while back when I was in the deli. Uh, and this store happened to have one of the fancy Murray's cheese shops in it that has all the you know artisanal crafty cheeses and stuff. Uh, and I was walking around checking tags for all of them, and they literally had a Rochefort cheese. And I was like, <laughs> it is. It's very smelly, huh? No one else got it, but uh, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> um, you, you know, one one thing that this, this movie does do that pretty much almost every other adaptation does from the book, and it's one of the few changes that I agree with and I love, is they give Rochefort a, an eye patch. And a lot of different versions give Rochefort an eye patch. Is he supposed to have a scar or something? Yeah, yeah, he's just got a scar over his temple. That's it. You know, he didn't actually lose an eye. But the eye patch is just such an iconic villain thing. Uh, dressing, a piece of dressing for a villain. And and, and uh, this Rochefort, I think, is is one of, one of my favorites. I also I like... love that they... Go ahead, Jay. I was just going to say, I like the part where... Um... D'Artagnan does get caught spying and then they bring him to Cardinal Richelieu and he asks his name and he says his name's D'Artagnan and Rochefort or uh, and he, he brushes the eye. Yeah. Richelieu has like a moment like, Do I know that name from somewhere? And then Rochefort just kinda like taps his patch on his eye and it's like, Oh, him. Yeah, okay. It's I love that part. I was say I love that in this version they tie in Rochefort to not only D'Artagnan but to the other three musketeers as well because in the novel Rochefort is kind of just he's sort of like Lady de Winter he's an agent of the cardinal yeah. uh, we don't really know much about him in, in the novels he ends up he, being kind of he, he, he flip flops and ends up being a good guy for a little bit at the end or not say a good guy but he ends up helping the heroes a bit at the end when he realizes what the cardinal's really up to um, but in, in, in most film adaptations he's a straight up bad guy because we already have enough good guys uh, and, and this one, I love the fact that he's a former musketeer um, and who was was, you know, drummed out of the the, the musketeers by uh, Athos, Porthos and Aramis uh, for conduct on becoming a musketeer. They tie it into he's the guy that killed uh, D'Artagnan's father, which is another change from the book. Um, but I, I love that. He's not just, you know, a bad guy out there just being a bad guy. Like they, they give him again, and it's it's done very in like, you know, a handful of lines of dialogue that fills it all in, but it just it it elevates the character to so much more than just like henchman number one, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, oh god, he has an eye patch and he's a henchman for the main villain. He is number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who does number two work for? The Cardinal. <laughs> Sorry. No, uh, I, I love what they did with Rochefort in this in this movie. They uh, this movie, I, I in my opinion, does Rochefort the best. Um, he's straight up. He wears black. He wears the eye patch. He's a villain. There, it, it ties him into the heroes, just like you said. It, it does very well. And even though he's a very one dimensional character, he does not have any kind of an arc or anything. He just is what he is from beginning to end. But the actor, what's his name again? Michael Wincott. Yeah, that guy. Uh, he wears it well. He wears it. He embraces it. He's like, look, this is what I do. Let's do it. Let's go on. And he's and my favorite, my favorite Rochefort movie in this uh, moment in this movie 
is uh, right at the end. You know when he when he oh, gets, uh, yeah. yeah. And 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 he's D'Artagnan's there on the on the the steps and he's prone and he he takes time to 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 adjust his gloves you know he's he's got him dead to rights and he knows it and you know, and he says in that wonderful wonderful voice he's like one thing is for sure you are no musketeer and he re he rears up to to stab him down and of course Constance slips D'Artagnan uh, his sword and he stabs him and, and he drops the sword and staggers back in a wonderful death scene. But then he gives that line, I might have been mistaken, <laughs> and dies. I love it. It's my favorite Rochefort movement. I mean, it's no having your heart cut out with a spoon, but as far as Michael Wincott deaths go, pretty good. I had to cut his heart out with a spoon. Why a spoon, cousin? Why a fork or a knife? It's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. Sorry, now I'm quoting Robin Hood. Uh, but that's that's one of I have a theory I'll get into later. Uh, but but know that Michael Wincott just two years prior uh, played Guy of Gisborne, born Robin Hood. Um, we'll come, I'll I'll come back to that uh, later. But uh, so <clears throat> that brings us to um, some of the more minor roles, but still important. We have Gabrielle Anwar as Queen Anne uh, in her <laughs> reunion with Chris O'Donnell from Scent of a Woman. And uh, Julie Delpy as uh, Constance, a great actress, playing a very, very small role. Um, but uh, both fine actresses and uh, and, and both uh, you know, playing these roles very well. I mean, there's not much to those roles, but they play them well. Yeah, personally, I'm not a fan of Constance, the character of Constance in this movie. So She's not, she's not really even a character. Like She's, she's just yeah, there. Exactly. So with, with the character of Constance in the, the book and... Another thing, she is she she becomes a a mistress of D'Artagnan, so the love interest is in the book. Um, but she's also the wife of uh, a a prominent businessman who becomes an agent of the cardinal. Now, the movie strips her husband out of the story, and I get why. You know, I, I'm fine with it. You strip it out because you really don't need to get into all that. You're just going to get bogged down in detail that you don't need for this story. But once you strip him out. They pretty much reduce Constance to nothing more than she's there to be an obligatory love interest for for Chris O'Donnell. She's there that's, to be had. Yeah, that's it. That's, the, that's her only. That's her only real thing. Uh, the only thing she does in the movie that even even remotely drives the plot forward is when she slips Chris O'Donnell his sword there in the final fight. But you could yeah. have gotten away with that some other way. Um, so of all the characters and adaptations leaving Constance in just as a love interest is, is my least favorite. Fair enough. So, uh, so we've talked about the cast, uh, which for the most part, we're very happy with, uh, and, and some, some great actors in some, I think uh, for me anyway, career defining roles. Anytime you say Oliver Platt, my mind immediately goes to Porthos. I know he's he's done plenty of other stuff, but he will always be Porthos to me, uh, and I will always compare any other portrayal of Porthos to Oliver Platt. Um, so you better have a sash from the Queen of America, or you're just not going to cut the mustard with me. Uh, in all honesty, Oliver Platt is really the only person to have played this version of Porthos. 
I've never seen any other version of Porthos that can be compared directly to Oliver Platt's. Because every other actor saw him play that and thought, I can't do that. I better do something different. <laughs> um, I can't top that. Now, I know we'll get to it in a minute when we talk about other adaptations, but the 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 performances, the 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 versions of these characters that are in the, the BBC series. Uh-huh. I love them in their own right, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, before we ditch uh, uh, you know, cast and crew stuff, I do want to give a shout out. Um, this film is directed by Stephen Herrick. If you don't know the name, that's fine. I'm about to name drop some movies that I know you've seen. Uh, he's one of those actors who has a really interesting filmography. He's done a lot of different kind of stuff. Um, which I think ends up making this, you know, the, the movie benefits from him being sort of a, he, he didn't get bogged down in one genre. Um, he started out directing the cult classic Critters, uh, directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This movie, uh, I believe the year after this movie, he went on to do The Mighty Ducks, uh, also for Disney, uh, and Mr. Holland's Opus. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know, I right? He's, he's kind Opus. of all over the map. Sorry, go ahead. I love Mr. Holland's Opus. That's a great movie. Oh, it is I, a great I, movie. It's a fantastic movie. That, that's why I brought it up. It was just one of those like, you, again, you look at his filmography and you're like, he's 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 touched on like a little bit of everything. That's it's something you don't see a lot anymore. A lot of times nowadays, you know, directors get bogged down in, into one genre. They get typecast into one genre. Uh, but he really moved around a lot, man. Um, and, and I think the film benefits from that because he's a guy who, again, he understands. Uh, uh, fights and action, but he also understands comedy and romance, and like he, he gets everything. So everything is done right. Um, and let's not dance around it. It's the Three Musketeers. It is synonymous with buckling of swash. Let's talk about this film and its buckling of swash. The fights in this movie are amazing. They are, um, especially. Well, sorry, I was just gonna say, well choreographed. Uh, the sword fighting in in this movie is 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 really well done. I'm not an expert in sword fighting by any means, but uh, you know when you see Aramis taking on, you know, two at once when uh, the Cardinal's guards interrupt uh, D'Artagnan's and Aramis's duel. Um, which see this this is another thing that 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 I want to bring up about this movie is this movie gets shit on a lot for you know being oh it's not accurate to the book but this movie has a lot of accuracy to the book yeah they make some changes we, we've talked about a couple of them but like in this fight in the book aramis is the one that gets gets two opponents and he does in this movie um and and just watching him with the 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 two fights i know a lot of people talk about aramis or Charlie Sheen having missed the, 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 the training because he was doing hot shots part deux and he uses a lot of people have cited that he uses fisticuffs more than he uses swords in the movie. But literally when you, when you watch him in this fight, um, uh, he, 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 I don't know how to say it, but he uses a lot more weapons than just his sword. Cause he is fighting into opponents. And then of course you got the, the lovely, the lovely shot of, of him in the doorway of the ruins and, and one guy on each, you know, each side and they both charge. And he literally just turns to the side and parries between just guides the two swords around him. I just, uh, I love it. 
I also wrote that off as a great character moment uh, for him because again, we, we touched on this earlier, but and then they say this in the movie, he takes death very seriously. So it's not that he doesn't know how to handle himself in a fight. It's not that he doesn't know how to use his sword. He'd rather knock you out than kill you because he doesn't yes. want to take your life. So in this fight, he's he's holding off two opponents. He doesn't kill either one of them. They kill each other. Yep. I thought that was a, a beautiful moment for the character of, you know, he would have sat there and, and parried him all day because he's that good. Uh, until he would, he could get close and knock one of them out because that's not his 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 go to is not to kill. He doesn't take a life uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. And I love the fact that the, they wrote the scene for him to, yeah, he he fought off two guards, but they killed themselves. So, uh, and then I love the part of you know him giving him last rites at the end when they were both dead. So, yeah, that's how I would look at it. Yeah, and and now now him giving the two the the last rites there. Uh... I don't know how I feel about this because the character of Aramis did study in the priesthood. And then, you know, even, you know, even in the novel and everything, this is part of his character. And then he becomes a musketeer because of other extenuating circumstances that this movie doesn't explore. I get that. That's fine. But the line of Athos saying he was once one of the Cardinal's students. I don't know how I feel about that because one, it's an oversimplification of the character of Athos or Aramis, but two, it also gives us a, a character tie between um, uh, Aramis and Cardinal Richelieu and has a wonderful payoff in that last fight when he's standing between Richelieu and, and the thing. So I'm torn on as the people he said, takes off. Um, yeah, I'm torn on that. Okay. Part of me likes it. Part of me doesn't. So, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Uh, uh, yes, Jay? One, one tidbit of information about the cast, because I was, when you brought up, um, oh, what's his name? Hold on. Michael Wincott uh-huh. being in uh, Robin Hood. Yes. He is also in the Alexand- Alexander Dumas, uh, Dumas, whatever you want to say, double feature, because oh. he is in the Count of Monte Cristo. Holy yes. shit, he is. He's the, the captain or the uh, warden of the prison. Oh, God, I didn't even notice that. I love that movie. That's a great movie. So. And you can uh, me buy movies on Amazon. You're welcome. Uh, so yeah, the sword fights. Uh, and there's there's one name I absolutely want to talk about when we talk about this. And Scott, you know where I'm going. Um, this the sword fighting in this movie is top notch, and it should be because it's the three musketeers along with like Zorro and Errol Flynn are synonymous with this kind of swashbuckling sword fighting. And this movie has is it it, it is a it carries on the tradition of that old Hollywood style sword fencing uh, and movie fencing. Um, the bigger, you know, the jumping over the furniture and leaping off the stairwells kind of sword fighting. Uh, and it has a direct line back to those movies in its sword master, uh, a man named Bob Anderson. Uh, if you don't know Bob Anderson, don't worry. You've seen his fights. 
You ready? Here we go. Here's the movies. Bob Anderson, who is a former Olympic fencer, has been the swordmaster and choreographer for Highlander, Princess Bride, Mask of Zorro, Scott, Die Another Day, Pirates of the Caribbean, just the first one, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, and a couple movies I'd never heard of before, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Uh, Wait, is, is that is that about a, a a harbor, you know, where you have the yeah. little inlets of water, the the jetties? That's what I is the okay the fishing jetty, the fishing, the return yeah, of yeah. the fishing jetty. Yeah, yeah, that's what I Star Trek and the search for the undiscovered coffee. Sorry, throwback again. I had to say it. Uh, so Bob <laughs> Anderson, uh, who got his again, he started as an Olympic fencer. Uh, he ended up being hired as a coach for Errol Flynn in 1953. That got him into the movies, and the man just never left. He died at age 89, still choreographing sword fights in movies. Um, and all of those movies, whether you love them, hate them, whatever, share one common thread is that, and that is the sword fights are awesome. Uh, and the man you can thank for that is Bob Anderson. Uh, so when I saw his name in this movie, it, uh, it sent me down a, a bit of a well, a uh, deep dive. Um, this man had an amazing career, and and you see it all on screen. I, I believe he has an uncredited cameo. I might be wrong on this, but I believe he actually played. Uh, there's a scene where we, I think it's when we first meet King Louis. <clears throat> um, yep. He's in fencing practice, and I believe the fencing master teaching him is, I believe, Bob Anderson. It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I'm I'm sorry. As far as I'm concerned, I mean Bob Anderson is one of the unsung heroes of Hollywood. I mean, you know, you go from uh, teaching sword fighting and choreographing fights in movies. You start with Errol Flynn. Yeah. <laughs> and, and go all the way through. And if I, if I remember correctly, he actually wounded Errol Flynn in a, in a, in a movie fight they were doing, right? Yes. I believe he, he cut his wrist or something. Something. Uh, yes. during training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Errol Flynn was like, no, no, totally my fault <laughs> it's like i didn't yeah. know what i was supposed to do uh, yeah again his the movies he's worked on are legendary as far as sword fighting in movies i mean princess bride the the duel between um uh dread pirate roberts and Inigo montoya is maybe the best sword fight ever put on cinema um so yeah, again, direct lineage. This movie shares a direct lineage to Errol Flynn and Princess Bride and Lord of the Damn Rings. Um, it's it's amazing, all because of this one man. Oh, somebody really should put out a a, a Bob Anderson collection box set. That's, that's <laughs> pretty sure it's sitting on my shelf right now. Let me see. Yep, got all of them. <laughs> Well, actually, I'm I'm sorry. I'm looking here. I'm trying to find the Count of Monte Cristo on Blu-ray. And apparently, it's damn near impossible to find. Sorry, buddy. Damn it. Damn it, Jay. I found the book at Barnes & Noble. I saw that. But I want the movie, because that movie is awesome. Yeah, Michael Wincott isn't in the book. He could be. Uh... One other element I want to talk about before we move on is the score for this movie. The music in this movie is fantastic. Um, all for one, all for love. That wasn't exactly what I meant, but you're not wrong, Jay. <laughs> I meant specifically the score, uh, but that's fair. It's fair. They both have the same composer, uh, Michael Kamen. Um, Brian who, Adams? 
<laughs> well, yeah, Brian Adams performs. Uh, but well, here's the thing. So that that song, the All for Love, uh, it's performed by Brian Adams, and the lyrics were by Brian Adams, but the arrangement, Michael Kamen, because he wanted to make sure that the score. Uh, for the movie and that song, which was intended to be released as a single, um, had the the same motifs. Um, so he he worked on both of those. Uh, the score in this movie is is great. Uh, it, it's epic and moody and romantic and 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 can crank up the the adrenaline when it needs to. Um, if you don't know Michael Kamen, again, you're familiar with his work, uh, Highlander. Uh, all the Lethal Weapon movies, Die Hard 1, 2, and 3, Last Action Hero, Event Horizon, Iron Giant, Band of Brothers, um, the first X-Men movie, uh, and, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. But the score of this movie is great. And it's one of those, uh, the main theme is one of those ones you heard repeated a lot in trailers uh, for years afterwards uh, when they would use temp, temp tracks in a trailer because the music wasn't done yet. Uh, like this and like the Stargate theme. <laughs> if you go back and look at 90s trailers, you hear that a lot. Because uh, the music is just that great. All right, then, moving on, I guess. Sorry, uh, I got nothing for the music. I'm not a music yeah. person. In fact, 90% of the time when discussions come up of music, like what was your favorite you know, music in a video game or what music do you like? I know nothing. I don't hear music in a movie. I mean – Physically, I hear it. Obviously, the sound comes, but my brain does not register music ever. If you watch, show me a movie or a video game or something, and then you ask me literally immediately after we get done, you know, what did you think of that song? My response is going to be, there was a song. I don't know why my brain ignores the music, but my brain ignores the music with one exception. Brian Adams. No, not Brian oh. Adams. <laughs> According to South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Canada has repeatedly apologized for Brian Adams. But um, main title takeoff by uh, in in The Rocketeer by James Horner. Yep, I love that song. It's a wonderful song. That was in my wedding. Makes me just wish I could have been there even more. Uh, yeah, missed stuff. Scott, I'm going to quote Maxwell Smart. I missed it by that much. <laughs> you did. Sorry. Uh, okay, so the music is great. The sword fighting is great. The cast, for the most part, is great. Uh, what other things do we want to talk about with this movie, uh, or do we want to go ahead and move on to other adaptations and why this one's the best? <clears throat> All right, Scott, what do you got? Well, so I'm trying to organize my thoughts here. That's what notes are good for. Nah, I don't like notes. All right. Well, you're thinking, I want to point out another reason this movie is awesome. In this movie, there's a prolonged carriage and horseback chase scene. But because it's a 90s action movie, <laughs> we find a way to make sure that that chase scene ends with a giant explosion. I hate that explosion. I love that explosion. I hate that explosion. It makes no sense, and I fucking love it. It makes no damn sense at all. It has no business being there, but I love it. Why is it there? Because it's an action movie in the 90s, and it legally has to have an explosion. Now, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. You brought this up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this, this, the end of this chase. Okay. So first of all, 
this is a good chase because you've got that it, it's you know the the, the d'artagnans you know being executed is the moment where well actually it's not really the moment but it, it's kind of hand in hand with the moment where they all kind of force solidify and you get the chase and everything yeah and then they you know they they finally they they turn the carriage up and they go up this incline and they 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 stop the carriage they get out they unhitch the horses and they set the wagon on fire and they roll it back down the hill right uh-huh I want you to realize that this exact scene is mimicked in a more recent movie. Okay. What movie? And that movie is The Martian. I, I can't remember right now. Uh, oh, great. No. Oh, that movie. Hey, I don't have the title up here. The one with the guy. It's just popped in my thing. head. You know Chris, that guy. Chris Helmsworth. And, uh, I'm sorry. Extraction? No, 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 no. Chris Helmsworth and uh, Rooster Cogburn, the new one. Um, <laughs> I'm blanking on names right now. I'm sorry. The, the remake of, uh, of of True Grit, who played the main character, who played Rooster Cogburn. I know who you're talking about, but what movie were they in together? Oh, shit. Uh, hang on. Okay. Fuck. It was the dude. It's God, a, what is his name? It's a decent movie. Um, Jeff Bridges is who you're talking about. Jeff Bridges, Just, yeah. yeah. Where the fuck are you, team? No, no. I'm looking at his his thing here. Uh, no. Really? What? The fuck? Okay, yeah, I don't remember them being in a movie together. They are in a movie together. Okay. Uh, it, 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 he plays a bank robber. Him and his brother are robbing banks. And Jeff Bridges is, I think he's a Texas yeah, Ranger. You're thinking of Hell or High Water, and that yeah. is not Chris Hemsworth. That is Chris Pine. Chris Pine. Thank you. I knew it was a Kirk. <laughs> Leave me alone. It was one of the Kirks. It was a Kirk. I may not know much, sir, but the filmography of Thor I have on lock. Anyway, Hell or High Water. That scene is duplicated in Hell or High Water. When you got them, they're in the truck. And they're being chased by the cops, and they turn up that dirt road, and it's a slight incline. And just like in the Three Musketeers, they stop, and they roll the truck back down the hill. And just like in the Three Musketeers, where the Cardinals guards have a shit ton of open room, they could just, you know, ride around the carriage. The, the cops could just drive around on this very flat terrain, this truck in hell or high water. But no, for some odd reason, they're like, oh, my God, a truck. Just like the, 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 the Cardinals guards. Oh, my God, a carriage. And it stops them cold. And I don't know why. Okay, so you're mad because another movie did the same thing like 20 years later? Yes, but they didn't fix it because it makes no sense then and it makes no sense now. In the movie, okay, in Three Musketeers, I thought the point of rolling the chariot back was to roll it back into camp and take out the rest of the guards so that they weren't swarmed. Porthos, the brandy. Yes, it was. It was. They set him on fire and they rolled it yes. back to the guards. Yes, just Into like the in the camp. truck. Yeah, just like in the truck, it was meant to roll it back down the hill and so to block the way of the cops coming. But there's crap tons of room. They're on horses. They're in cars. They can go around. They don't need to stop and run from the the vehicle that's rolling down a hill quite slowly. 
Okay, I'm going to go back to my original point, which is this is a movie set in 1840-something, but we still found a way to work an explosion into a car chase without cars. Actually, it's set in the 17th century, so it's like 1645 or something. It's in ye olden days, and we still found a way to get a car explosion without cars. Listen. the movie is that awesome. Listen, all I have to say is this axe was a gift to me from the Tsarina of Tokyo. Thank you, Jay. So, uh, so, Scott, the point you were supposed to be bringing up, other adaptations. Other adaptations. Uh, so I've, I've seen a lot of different adaptations of the Three Musketeers because I love the Three Musketeers. But I, I so here recently, I, I did finally get a chance to watch the... Uh, um, the BBC series of the Musketeers. And I have to say this, this may be one of my favorite uh, iterations of it. Uh, It only went three seasons. I wish for more. I'm not completely finished with it. Um, I'm in the middle of season two right now, but I love the caricatures. Um, They did. So when it comes to the, 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 the portrayal of these characters in this series, they tried to give each character his own niche okay so it it follows aspects of the novel pretty well of course there's a lot of stuff in the series that's not in the novel because it's a series so they're trying to get other stories and stuff in and and that's fine um but athos is the best swordsman of the musketeers of athos porthos and Aramis. he's the swordsman um aramis is actually the uh, the best marksman of the group. And this brings in another fact of this version that I love, and that is every other iteration of the Musketeers really focuses on the swordplay and the swashbuckling, which is fun, it's great, it's visually appealing, but they are Musketeers. They need muskets. They fire muskets. Debatable. They fight with muskets. It's not debatable. It's in the name. Musketeers. Musketeers. Muskets. Um, so Aramis in the, in the BBC version is the, the, the marksman of the group. He actually uses the muskets and, and rifles. Uh, not rifles, but um, the, the – I don't know. What would the long guns, I guess you could call them? Um, long better guns. Than the others. Porthos is a wonderful – called muskets. Yes, but I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you see, you just completely derailed me. Porthos' version is he, the man can fight with anything. He's, he, I, I'm not going to say just brawler because in the first episode, they, you know, Aramis and Porthos are, uh, they're drinking and they're having a good time and they get attacked by uh, somebody. And I forget who attacks them. But, you know, uh, actually it was a difference of opinion in a card game. And uh, the guy gets up and he draws his sword, you know, and Aramis is like, oh, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, this isn't kosher. Uh, You know, uh, Porthos is unarmed. You can't do this. And Porthos looks over and grabs a fork from the table. And he's like, I've got this. And Aramis is like, that'll work. (laughs) Because he can fight with anything. And and this was intentional. So those were the three characters. Uh, characteristics, and then of course uh, D'Artagnan comes in, and and he's, he's a man whore. Oh, sorry, not no no D'Artagnan, not Aramis. D'Artagnan, 
That's a man whore. So D'Artagnan comes in and he is, he literally has the traits of all three um, because he is vision to be the best of all of them because he will eventually lead the Musketeers. He, he will take over from Mr. Treville. And uh, I love that ad- adaptation. It's, it's a great adaptation. It's wonderful. Um, so I've recently been watching that. And I also just recently discovered, I know I'm late to the party on this one, The and I haven't watched the sequels yet but because uh, I haven't had time, but I want to, is the, the 1973 Musketeers. Three Musketeers. Uh... Oh, God, I love this movie. First off, the BBC series is great, uh, and it does. It, it's a great job because the novel itself, Three Musketeers, uh, is very episodic. It was originally published in a newspaper in multiple parts, so it's not not to like the level of of like The Hobbit, uh, where every chapter is its own short story. But it, there's a lot in the novel, and it's not really one cohesive, coherent narrative. It wanders a bit, so I think the the story itself is more apt for adaptation in a series than it is a movie. Because in a movie, you got to make it a, a concise story. You got to tell beginning, middle, and end in two hours. So every movie adaptation, for the most part, drops a lot of stuff. Uh, the 70s version, they did two movies back-to-back, uh, so they adapt a lot more of it. Um, but I hate Richard Lester as a director. Um, I don't like his his random shifts in tone. Uh, he, he makes it way too slapsticky. Uh, I can never take D'Artagnan serious in his movies because he's just a moron, uh, <laughs> like offensively moronic. Um, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, it just, it's like if I can't. For, granted, yes, D'Artagnan as a character does a lot of dumb stuff. Uh, but if I, I at least need to understand why he's doing a dumb thing and root for the character, D'Artagnan in this version, uh, and I forget who he's played by. It's a, it's a good actor. I can't remember his uh, name. Michael York is that his name. Yeah, Michael York, who's a great actor. He's but a great in this actor. role, he's just he's a fucking moron. You know in, in any other movie, he's the slapstick comic relief. You know, I, I, I love the slap. See, this is where you and I differ. I love the right. slapsticky part of this. Um, because, so, there, there's one thing, like, let's, let's look at the 1993 Disney, you know, Three Musketeers. So, when D'Artagnan comes to Paris, he meets the Three Musketeers because he, he literally, in a couple of cases, runs into them as he's running through the streets of Paris and, and of course the, the offenses that are taken, he, he gets into uh, a duel in the movie, in the 1993 movie, the Disney movie, they have the character of Gerard that facilitates this chase. And this is why I hate the character of Gerard. Cause he's, he's only introduced. He's invented just to fulfill the causality of this chase. And literally once this chase is done, he's pretty much done for the movie until the very end, because this is his one-off. This is the only reason he's there. Whereas in the book, um, D'Artagnan is beaten senseless by the, the, the hired hands of Monsieur Rochefort and his letter of introduction to Monsieur Treville is, is stolen. And when he introduces himself to Treville, once he gets to Paris, out the window, you know, he sees Rochefort. He's like, that's the man that, you know, that, that, that stole my letter and everything. So he rushes out of the office and he's chasing Rochefort through the streets. Not really chasing because Rochefort actually doesn't know he's being chased. And so he's getting, you know, 
uh, he's just trying to catch up to him and he keeps running into these people and, and that's how we meet everybody. But in this movie, <laughs> he literally sees him and tries to jump out of the window <laughs> and he lands on, I forget, it was like, it's like a lean to or something that was down there. They didn't know it was down there. And he's like, well, shit. And it, it gets raised up or something. He just literally walks back in. And Mr. Treville's like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. This guy's an idiot. And so he's like, excuse me. And then he runs out. So I, yes, it is slapstickish, but I fully love and embrace the slapstickish of the 1973. If version. you don't, if you if you don't know who Richard Lester is, he's, he's the director of those movies. Uh, Three Musketeers, Four Musketeers and the Musketeers Return. Uh, you might know him better from a little movie called Superman three. And that yeah. should tell you all you need to know about Richard Lester. Yeah, like the, the, the best of the Superman movies, the the all-time career high of, like, uh, uh, Richard Pryor, wasn't it, I'm thinking? Or was that Superman 4? Scott? I don't remember. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and use my one per day. You're a weird guy, Ace. <laughs> yeah, I, I, get, I get why people probably wouldn't care too much about the this version of the Three Musketeers, the uh, Three Musketeers, the Four Musketeers, but... When it comes to a coherent and faithful adaptation of the events and characters from the book, this mo- these movies really do it well. They, they have the Three Musketeers, and then in the Four Musketeers and the, the Musketeers Return, you go into the D'Artagnan romances. Uh, now, with Four Musketeers, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I think they get a little wonky with the the basically D'Artagnan's son and uh, daughter of Malady the Winter, which I, I've not read all of the D'Artagnan romances. I've just read Three Musketeers, but I don't I don't think they're in there. I don't I don't remember. But as far as faithful adaptation, you know. This this movie really does follow event for event, the book more than any other movie does. I will give it that. Look, is as, as annoyed as I am by these movies, there is still one Three Musketeers movie that I place even lower on my list. Of like, I don't. I'm not a fan of these movies, but I'll watch them, and I'll watch any of them a million times over the other one you haven't brought up yet. Uh, talking about the the latest one that I watched because I hadn't seen it before, and everyone kept telling me not to, but I was stubborn. Yep, that was that's the one. The Musketeer is that right? No, 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 no. Skip right over that one. The Musketeer. Before we get to this one, I want to touch base on the Musketeer. I haven't seen it for a while. I saw it in theaters and stuff. It has a very early two thousands uh flair to it. Like the, 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 some of the scenes are over like the scene where they fight on the, the ladders. They're in a room of ladders and they go back and forth. Uh, the, the selling point for that movie when it was being released was it was the same fight choreographer, Yen Wu Ping, who did The Matrix. Ah, I don't remember that. But yeah. I mean, it, it's an okay adaptation. It's definitely not the worst. It's not the best. It's not one of my go tos. I actually forget it exists a couple of times. But the one that that uh, Obi John is, is speaking of is the Three Musketeers. I think what 2011. Yep. With um, Mila Jovovich, um, <laughs> I forget uh, Orlando Bloom, and literally I forget everybody else in this movie. I don't know who else is in this movie. Um, but I love Mila Jovovich, 
and I heard that it existed. And for some odd reason, I had completely missed it. So I'm like, I got to watch this movie. And everyone's like, no, you really don't. And I'm like, it's Mila Jovovich. It's the Musketeers. So I got to watch this movie. And everyone's like, you really don't. <laughs> so I watched this movie. And the first half of this movie is not bad. It now, suckers you in. It does. So at the beginning of this movie, you've got literally the, the three musketeers are introduced. They're on this covert mission to uh, steal some Da Vinci plans of an airship. And, 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 and um, like Athos comes out of the water in this weird, uh, scuba suit thing and he has these weird complicated crossbows that he uses to kill a couple of people and I'm like okay okay this is this is different but I, I can embrace different and then we get to Paris after that because it flash forwards like three five years or some shit and we're in Paris and we got D'Artagnan coming in and we kind of start on track of the standard, you know, Alexander Dumas introduction of the Musketeers and D'Artagnan and everything. And I'm like, okay, an airship plus this weird scuba. Okay, it's a it's it's a steampunk kind of a reimagining of it. I don't mind steampunk. It's it's okay, and I can get behind this. And I'm watching, and I'm watching, and I'm watching. And then we get to the middle of this movie. Hard left turn. And for some odd reason, this movie becomes less about the Musketeers and more about the fact that King Louis Thirteenth can't keep up with the current fashion trends in Europe in the 17th century. Because we have whole scenes of him talking to his advisors. What is the Duke of Buckingham wearing now? And and, and and like, oh, he's wearing green. Yes, green, green. And then the Duke of Buckingham shows up in blue and he's really embarrassed because he's wearing green. And the Duke of Buckingham's like, oh, you're wearing green. How posh. You know, it's, it's, it, it suits you. It suits you. And then so King Louis is like, I want everything blue. And he changes to blue. But then Buckingham shows up in purple. And I stopped watching because I had something else I had to go do so I stopped the movie and by the time I got back I was like I really don't care to continue this movie because it's not the Three Musketeers it's it's been revisionist 17th century fashion with Orlando Bloom <laughs> Jay you still there yeah I was just looking through the cast Mads okay. Mickelson's in it no, great cast. Uh, great I want cast. you to play a game with me real quick, Jay. Okay? Okay. All right. The movie has Mila Jovovich. Can yeah. you guess who directed this movie? Give you a uh, hint. They're married. Oh, I can't think of his name. Is it the same guy that directs everything that she's in? Yeah. Paul W.S. Anderson. Do we all uh, remember what he directed? Resident Lots of Evil, things. Alien what is vs. Predator, a bunch of other Resident Evil movies, Monster Hunter, you know, every shitty video game movie you can remember, except for the Uwe Boll ones. So can you guess how this movie ends? I'll give you a hint. 
It's how every fucking Paul W.S. Anderson movie ends. A cliffhanger to set up a sequel that's never going to happen. That's good. Um, I was going to try to change the tone and maybe put us on a little happier note. Oh, we'll end on a happy note. I just want everyone to know how terrible the 2011 Three Musketeers is. Because if, if, if what Scott said doesn't kill it for you, what killed this movie for me was, because I'm with you, Scott. I'm like, okay, this is a little weird. <laughs> it's a little, little Matrixy kind of weird action, but I, I guess we're trying to modernize it. I'll go with it. It's, it's them being like on a secret mission. Okay, fine, sure. And then again, then like the next 20 minutes after that is like verbatim from the book. I'm like, oh wow, maybe I misjudged this. Yeah. And then we get dirigibles with ships underneath them uh, 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 firing cannons on a city and I'm like, okay, we have gone into full-on bull- bullshit mode uh, and it's as if that wasn't enough at the end of the film they double down on that because the whole third act, if I remember correctly, is based on one of these giant flying dirigibles and by that I mean, imagine like a, a uh, 18th, 17th century sailing vessel, but it's flying because uh, it has a giant balloon above it now, because uh, Da Vinci. Uh, and then the end, the teaser, is uh, is it uh, um, Orlando Bloom plays the Duke of Buckingham? Is that who he plays? Correct, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The Duke of Buckingham is coming to invade France with an armada of flying dirigible ships. Um, you know how you always like to say I'm the guy that keeps the nerd and talk nerdy to me. Yep. And you know how there are certain things that, that really don't matter, they're not important, but they, they trigger this this chemical reaction in my brain that I just have to point out weird stuff? Uh, we're all aware of that, yes, Scott. It, it, technically, they're not dirigibles. <laughs> so a dirigible has a fixed frame with gas bags inside it, um, whereas these are just hollow, you know, the gas-filled balloons with no rigid structure, so technically they're blimps. You're a gas bag with no rigid structure. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to. Whatever. Giant, stupid, uh, blimp, airship things that shouldn't exist and it looks stupid. And then we double down on it. <laughs> like, Paul W.S. Anderson was really sure people were going to love this idea and we better throw more of them in the end credits. Fucking moron. Sorry, go ahead, Jay. Uh, so it's not really an adaptation of the three musketeers, but it is my next favorite movie that includes the three musketeers. Okay. And, uh, that's the man in the iron mask. Yeah. You, you know, I remember seeing this way back when, and I remember not liking it, but I've only seen it once and it has been a very long time. So I really need to watch this again. Give it a rewatch. It's not, it's, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but in my mind, and this is just the way it works in my mind, the characters that they have as Athos, Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan, like the actors they got to portray them, and how they're in portrayed in this movie, to me, are kind of like the older versions of the 93 Musketeers. Like, You're yeah, absolutely if, right, Jay. If they grew, you know, if they got older, this is what I imagine them being like. And, um, like, uh, John, Porthos, John Malkovich. 
right? Yeah. John Malkovich is John Malkovich uh, Athos. is Athos. That's the only one I don't see. I don't see yeah. Kiefer Sutherland turning into that. But Porthos in that in Man in the Iron Mask is played by Gerard Depardieu, who I one thousand percent believe is the older version of Oliver Platt's character. And I I love his like French accent that he has the whole time. Like the other ones don't, but he does, and I love it. <laughs> like it's just great. Uh, but yeah, Scott, you should watch it again. I mean, there's a lot of like weird in that movie, but again, it's a weird movie, but like, if you can get past that, it kind of is very, uh, I don't, I don't know how to it's more of a it. drama like, than an action movie, but it's a really good follow up. Yeah. 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 Um, the only confusing part would be D'Artagnan getting jiggy with the queen, but. I guess that's not surprising. Spoiler. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Spoiler for, again, yep. this movie that came out a long time ago. Yeah, but, I've never actually read the D'Artagnan romances, so I don't know if that happens in any of the original novels or not. But the, what I really love about this movie is the end, when they're all cornered in uh, prison. Basically, that prison. I was trying to think of the name for it. The uh, yeah, the Bastille, basically, and they all like charge towards the, the cardinal's guards, basically, with swords it's... drawn, and nobody wants to shoot them because they're like, "Oh shit, it's the three musketeers!" Like it's it's the new musketeers who wear different uniforms, and they're yeah, yeah. they because they, D'Artagnan at that point is is with them on their side, and D'Artagnan is the captain of the musketeers at that point. So when they all charge, uh, they, they point out that uh, these guys are not only legends uh, to the musketeers, but it's literally their captain coming at them. So none of them actually want to hurt any of these people. So they close their eyes and blind fire. So they can say they followed orders. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. just I really like that movie. I think it's really good. Um I would not real that. not real happy about Leonardo DiCaprio, but you know. Well, again, it's it's more of a drama and it's it, the musketeers are there, but they're not necessarily the, the lead characters. Yeah, so DiCaprio in this is playing Louis the Fourteenth, correct? Sure. Because, yeah, it's the son of Louis Thirteenth, and I believe that there was an illegitimate son that originally was, he disappeared. And I'm talking the actual history now, and a lot of people think he was, he was locked in, not an iron mask. As a financial professional, what I get excited hell? when our clients learn things and see the light. Okay. What the fuck was that? that I was... get excited too, as a financial professional. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird ad that popped up on my thing. I'm very sorry for that. Um, Man, we're professionals. Come, yeah. D'Artagnan. We're saving the king. Come, D'Artagnan. We're saving the king. <laughs> oh, God, I love it. Oh, there's a 1977 version of the Man in the Iron Mask. Champagne? <laughs> Porthos, we're in the middle of a chase. You're right. Something red. For a chase? The Cardinal recommends his excellent 24 Cabernet. You can't have it. You're a genius. Uh, yeah, King Louis the 14th. That's that's who he plays, not the 13th. The 13th is, has been killed by now. Well, he's... So, in the movie, 
it's uh, identical twins. In the movie, it's identical twins. Once again, I don't know. I've yeah. not read. I've not year. I've not read twenty years after or. Once again, any of the D'Artagnan romances, however you want to divvy them up. Um, so I, I don't know how it's presented in the book, but yeah, yeah, I definitely need to need to watch this again. It's Man of the Iron Mask is good. Uh, yeah. Again, if you if you enjoyed this movie, I recommend watching Man of the Iron Mask because the first time I saw it, and I'm assuming Jay is probably in the same boat. I hadn't read the book yet. All I knew about Three Musketeers was from the '93 movie. So watching that, I was like, okay, yeah, I can see this. Hugh Laurie is in this movie. Sure. He's a King's advisor, so it's obviously not a major role, but yeah. (laughs) It's funny. Well, let's bring it home. Um, Are there any other adaptations you want to talk about before we get off to closing this out? I don't think so. Okay. So the 1993 Three Musketeers is a beloved movie by all of us on this show. Supposedly, I don't know about Scott. I love this movie. <laughs> don't hate this movie uh, at all. It's got a great cast uh, who have great chemistry together. You believe these guys are best buddies. Uh, it's amazing sword fight choreography from Bob Anderson. A great score from Michael Kamen. Uh, 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 the best cast D'Artagnan in cinematic history. Uh, <laughs> right, Scott? Scott, right? Scott, Scott? Uh, it's infinitely quotable, uh, as, as we've shown you throughout the show today. Um, pretty much every line Porthos said is a great quote. Uh, it's just a really, really fun movie. Um, start to finish, it's a great time. You can find it on Disney Plus right now. You owe it to yourself to watch it. Anybody else? Go watch it right now. If no. you're not watching it right now, you need to go watch it right now. But they're listening to us right now. Okay. Once you're done listening to us, go watch it right now. Okay, I can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, I believe that does it for us tonight. Uh, thank you for dealing with our nerd ramblings. Um, hopefully you've seen the movie. <laughs> heard a lot of the shows not going to make sense. Uh, <laughs> but go check this movie out. We love it. Uh, so we'll end tonight's show. Uh <clears throat> All for one. All for love. And more for me.